0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to Salt Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the managing director of Salt, as well as a partner at Skybridge Capital. Salt is a global thought leadership forum and capital introductions platform. Skybridge is a global alternative asset management firm. Uh, Salt Talks is our digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these Salt Talks is the same as our goal at our global Salt conferences which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And in addition to our ongoing series of Salt Talks, we're excited for our next in-person conference, which is November 14th to the 16th at Marina Bay Sands in Singapore. Uh, We're very excited today to welcome Dan Vanet to Salt Talks. Uh, Dan is a co-founder and managing partner of iCapital, which is a leading alternative investing fintech platform. Dan today leads iCapital Marketplace, which is the largest global platform that connects predominantly wealth managers with the world's leading alternative asset managers. And we're excited to learn more about the continued evolution and growth of iCapital today. Dan, it's a pleasure to have you on. Before we get into more of the meat of the conversation, I talked a little bit about uh, your current position and your background, but uh, very quickly, could you give us a little bit more context into sort of your career and the inspiration that led you to co-found iCapital. Sure, sure. Happy to. And very nice to see you again, John. Um, so we
1: founded iCapital uh, just over a decade ago. Um, I personally and, and the other founders have been deep believers, in alternatives and the positive benefits they can bring to client portfolios and have spent uh, over the last 20 years myself in the asset class. Um, I, we'll get into a little bit later, some of the reasons for uh, our deep belief in, in alternatives, and then also some some observations about public markets. Um, they obviously have their place in a client's portfolio, uh, but I think generally speaking, most clients are, are likely overexposed to uh, the large indices today, and, and maybe even you know as it turns out, you know some specific names within the indices. And alternatives can help provide specific exposures uh, that help you know with correlations, uh, lower volatility, enhanced returns over time. So. Um, we founded the company about 10 years ago. Uh, today, we're about 1,200 uh, team members. Uh, we spent hundreds of millions of dollars on building the industry's uh, alternative infrastructure. And that's used by uh, several hundred leading asset managers in the alternative space and, and really just about every form of wealth manager, from the largest wirehouses, uh, the Wall Street wirehouses, to independent broker dealers, independent RAAs, family offices, and the like. Um, have come to adopt the iCapital technology and operational footprint to help help their clients achieve their objectives.
0: One of the interesting things, obviously, everybody knows about the RIA marketplace being very fragmented, and you guys have filled a void there in providing technology and a suite of alternative investment products to fill the needs within those portfolios. But you've also, as you mentioned, partnered with large wirehouses, and you guys have built sort of best-in-class technology to help solve needs for them why do you think that uh, i capital has been able to fill that void uh among large banks that obviously are well resourced but have still leaned on i capital uh, to meet those solutions
1: yeah I I think it comes down to some of the um the the nuances and complexities of of owning alternatives and also just the fact that alternatives as an asset class are very broad and 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 the structures range very significantly. So um, the the ability to provide consistent uh, updated reporting that's comprehensive that that actually shows a level of transparency and is digestible by the average uh, financial advisor or client uh, requires a, a very very significant investment in technology. And and I guess I I've, going back to when we founded the company. Um, we we figured if we could get some of the leading asset managers, the Blackstones, Apollos, KKR's of the world, uh, to adopt our technology, um, we would have uh, you know we'd have a very very easy time of getting investors to see the benefits of alternatives. And what we found was that that premise was actually uh, incorrect. Um, we needed to to spend you know I used to say tens of millions, but these days it's it's hundreds of millions of dollars wiring up the entire. Uh, alternative infrastructure, all the third parties. So when you think about uh, custodians, transfer agents, fund administrators, tax and audit providers, none of their systems talk to each other. Um, Everybody's built, and and, and many of them are still actually operating on Excel files. There's been some uh, adoption of technology, but even when one firm adopts a technology standard, it doesn't it doesn't interplay with all the others that it needs to in order to give a an end to end transparency uh, to the advisor and ultimately to their client. Uh, I didn't even mention performance management systems or performance reporting platforms, of which most of them are third party in nature. Uh, that most most RAs and wirehouses outsource that activity, um, and so what you wind up with is this, this this large web of very complicated software platforms in order to provide clients the visibility into their performance, but none of them speak to each other. And so we massively underestimated the work that would be involved in, in getting all of the systems to, to work with each other. We've actually had to build components of fund administrators uh, and work with them to adopt some standards. We've had to um, rewrite the rules around uh, subdoc remediation. Electro, obviously, all of our subdocs are electronic today. But just having an electronic subdoc, whether it's. Uh, you know, DocuSign or EchoSign or some proprietary format doesn't really matter if the document can't be remediated it through the KYC and AML process and uh, incorporating all of the the clients um, you know legal identification and, and and suitability standards et cetera. So there's just every piece of the puzzle from understanding all it's the education process to the transaction component to the ownership life cycle. So your your private capital partners' account statements. Uh, your uh, tax and audit, your K one statements or 1099s, uh, through to that you know that that last document that you receive in 12 or 15 years, it all needed to be incorporated and it all needed to be uh, engaged. And and so we're we're very fortunate that we've had strategic partners that have funded the company and uh, have a very long term vision. I think that'll be a theme through this discussion: is the long term nature of of alternatives. But there's also a long-term nature of building the right industry infrastructure. Uh, it can't be built in, in a year or two. It, it takes time and it takes cooperation from the asset managers, the wealth managers, and all the third party service providers uh, that are that are part of that process as well.
0: Yeah. And, and putting on my SkyBridge hat for a second, I can certainly attest to the fact that 15 or so years ago, uh, when SkyBridge was started, there wasn't a lot of knowledge or education within the financial advisory community where we do a lot of our distribution and have historically done a lot of our distribution and systems like iCapital have done wonders in terms of growing adoption of alternatives, educating advisors about the benefits of diversification of alternatives within portfolios. So it's been exciting to see, you know, as people who support the growth of the alternative investing ecosystem, uh, to see the impact that iCapital has made uh, within the financial advisor community. Uh, And speaking of the alt space, you know, on a more macro level, you've obviously been in the industry for a long time. How has this space evolved over the last, let's say, 20 years? Uh, and then what do you think the next 20 years is going to look like in terms of where we'll go from here? Yeah, great. It's a, obviously a great question. And it's been fascinating being being part of
1: it, as you have been as well. Um, I, I, mean, I guess maybe if we just sort of zoom out a level, uh, you know, there's a sort of fundamental question. I just talked about all the difficulty of wiring together the the industry infrastructure and the transparency that we need to provide to advisors and clients. So, so you, it, naturally, the question would be, well, why would I go through all that, right? Well, well why, why even bother with alternatives, particularly when the S&P 500 has performed so well for me over time? And I, and I think I'll just make a couple of observations. Um, I, you know, I, I own public stocks in my portfolio. I, I happen to own a lot more alternative exposures than I do public for, for a variety of reasons, um, but but there there is certainly a role for public equities in a in a client portfolio. I think the issue with public equities, and it's all over the news every day today. Um, you know, I was just listening to some of Ray Dalio's uh, comments on you know what he thinks is going to happen to long term yields. Um, it, it just because of all the structural imbalance that we have, because of all the government debt that we've taken on, effectively shifting private sector debt to the government and that sets a pretty precarious backdrop for equity performance uh, at least in in my view and i've lived through you know i'm i'm, I'm you know mid 40s but i've lived through several major market corrections just in the 25 years that i've been a market participant in fact i've lived through it, a decade of loss performance from march of 2000 to march of 2010 when the s&p 500 returned exactly 0% return on an annualized compounded basis from March of 2000 to March of 2010. That's not particularly helpful if you're trying to grow wealth, right? Or if you were at a life event where you needed to pay for college or buy a new home to have a lost decade in in the best managed, best company index in the world, right? The S&P 500. NASDAQ was even worse. NASDAQ took 15 years to make a new high from March of 2000 to March of 2015. So there can be these very long protracted periods of underperformance or no performance um, in the public markets, as well as if you want to pick individual stocks, that's a whole nother podcast, but individual stocks have incredibly, incredibly volatile uh, histories. If you just look at, say for example, a a meta over the last 24 months and the round trip that's done, or even, even an incredibly managed you know, resource company like ExxonMobil, uh, you know, having having moved around and being cut in half and then doubling and you know, over the same time period. Th- these are dramatic moves that have real impacts on people's, you know, net worth if they're core positions. And so alternatives can bring current yield into a portfolio, they can reduce correlations that you're trying to reduce, uh, they can reduce volatility that you're experiencing, um, they can protect from inflation, right? So no one basket of alternatives is appropriate for everybody. Everybody has their own, you know, objectives and and their own starting point. Um, but but we've developed tools. I think we'll talk about a little bit later, like like the iCapital Architect and the iCapital Marketplace, where we try to bring forward a truly diverse spectrum of alternatives, so that advisors can actually take specific exposures and add specific exposures to their clients' existing portfolio of bonds, stocks, ETFs, and cash to create the best outcome for them. Um, and so we think a lot about that when when we why would you go through all the effort? Well the reason is you have persistent outperformance, right? So if we just look at and I'll just wrap on some data. Um, we we published some data recently that over five years, if you take the average private equity index, so this is a broad spectrum of uh, if you look at buyout, growth, secondaries, uh, real estate, venture, uh, that portfolio has returned 18.8% over the last five years. It's been an incredible performance against a 9.4% for the S&P. Now, it's not always you know 900 basis points of, of alpha that you're getting for alternatives, but over longer time periods, say a 20-year time period, uh, the track record again for the median fund uh, in these indices is 13.9% against an SP of, of 9.8%. So you're still getting, you know, in the range of 400, 500 basis points of annual alpha from the alternative index. And that's just if you're picking the average alternative fund. If you're picking top quartile managers, you have the help of of you know someone who's on the diligence side who's been investing in private equity for their career and they can actually do a little better than the average you might be enjoying 1000 basis points or 10% of annual return over the publicly available indices um and and so you know it really helps kind of smooth out some of those you know, lumpy returns that we all experience in the public market. And that's why we think it's worth it. That's why we think it's worth getting educated and and using the right tools to bring these, bring these, uh, uh, exposures into your client portfolio.
0: Before we get into more sort of analysis of the current investment outlook or landscape, I want to talk a little bit more about iCapital Marketplace and iCapital Architect, which you referenced. Obviously the company, as you mentioned, has been around for a decade, but recently you, uh, you know, made a lot of fanfare about the relaunch of of the marketplace and architect. Could you talk about how those represent a significant evolution and and growth and what you guys have already built and why you're excited about those two products? Absolutely. And and, and I'm I'm personally
1: super excited about both marketplace, iCapital Marketplace and iCapital Architect, really because um it it we could never even imagined this 10 years ago that we'd be at a point where we could tie together the industry. And provide tools like this. Um, they take tremendous amounts of resources. We have staffs of PhDs on at iCapital, uh, and we work with our partners like Blackstone and 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 KKR and Apollo and many others on thought leadership. and And you've probably seen a lot of the stuff that we produce there. It takes a tremendous amount of resources, and we simply wouldn't be able to provide these tools to the market uh, if we didn't have those strategic backers. So, very very fortunate for that. I'll give you just a soundbite or two on each. So marketplace. Um, today, it takes all of the asset managers that we've been working with, which is numbers in in several hundred unique, discrete asset managers, uh, and it brings it to one platform uh, where we have over 100,000 financial advisors across the iCapital properties. And we allow those, those financial advisors to view and, and do deep dives on track record, competitive positioning, team, uh, the data room, has all the, you know, the PPM, the, the LPA, all the pitch books, everything on the digital platform. And we allow them to make their own decisions. And we've been doing that for, for the better part of the decade, but but the really unique thing about Marketplace is we've introduced an entirely new advisor and client experience with tools to uh, look at funds in a more analytical nature, to track funds. So we have a followable fund feature. Let's say you're interested in private credit funds. You could take all the say, you know, eight or 10 private credit funds we have on the platform available today. You can follow them and you'll get updates directly from the manager about new portfolio additions, distribution activity, why they why they think you know they're excited about the marketplace. Maybe it's a rising yield environment and they have a hundred percent floating rate book. So they're actually benefiting. While many other asset classes uh, are starting to show some signs of of issues, increased delinquencies and higher debt loads, private credit funds for the most part uh, are are perfectly set up for this type of environment, right? So you have the ability to sort of line up and follow those funds, get the insights directly from those managers through the iCapital marketplace. And that really dovetails into the iCapital Architect. So what is iCapital Architect? In a punchline, it is the industry's first analytical tool that allows advisors to better understand how alternative investments and structured investments fit within their client portfolio uh, to better align to their client objectives. So so that's sort of a mouthful. What, what does that really mean day to day? A client and their advisor can pull in their existing exposures. So they can pull in their stocks, their bonds, their cash, their ETFs, and then they can actually add specific alternative exposures. So by name, they could add a fund, and they could see how that fund would change their client's objectives on a factor-based analysis over a couple of different dimensions. You know, Those dimensions might be volatility, liquidity, protection characteristics, and obviously no one, again, no one exposure, no one fund is appropriate for everybody. But what Architect does is it it, it moves you away from just saying, well, I'm going to try and Buy top quartile funds and invest in things that do, you know, twenty five percent IRR every year, and it moves the analysis into how does this fund look in my current portfolio? Maybe I'm very heavy in tech and in, in in the Magnificent Seven, as everyone keeps talking about, right? So I would want exposures to alternatives that provide different characteristics, right? Maybe uh, inflation protection, maybe things that do better in a rising interest rate environment, because most people would suggest that mega cap tech will do, you know. Worse in a rising interest rate environment, right? As you discount those that growth that those that those companies provide, and so you are able to look at this in an analytical, again, factor based uh, way, and provide your client with those insights to help make better decisions. And that's ultimately why we're so excited about the at capital Architect.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, especially on the architect side, it's almost like giving independent financial advisors and and uh, wealth advisors that exist in the uh, larger bulge bracket firms, the tools that exist at larger institutions where they have these large and diverse uh, investment teams that are always analyzing risk, but you're putting those tools in the hands of of the smaller advisors as well as the wirehouse advisors. That's fascinating. Right. Um, as we've seen AI really grow a- and capture more attention, how much of the growth of chat GPT and open AI has informed the build out of iCapital Architect? Because as I look at different applications for AI, I've always thought that AI has a specifically uh, compelling application towards asset management and sort of some of what uh, Architect does, which is identifying blind spots in portfolios and and helping sort of based on market conditions, based on individual portfolios, make projections about uh, where an investor or a client might want to reinforce their portfolio. How much of the growth of ChatGPT has informed uh, your, your build out of Architect? We're we're doing a lot of work
1: on it uh, right now, so um, I sort of liken it to uh, people get super excited about you know the potential, right? And, and um, obviously, there's people a lot smarter than me that are spending you know all of their time now thinking about the potential good that will come from AI, as well as the potential you know potential harm or things we need to look out for. We we, we have a, a team working on AI internally to help clients um, uh, digest materials that we provide. And we're doing so in a a constrained or closed environment, right? So we'll feed the machine learning and generative AI models the fund documents, right? So this is all compliance approved. It's been signed off by the general partner. It's been signed off by iCapital Compliance. And so the entirety of the result set is from... The documents that that advisor or that investor already has access to in the data, in the data room or on our website, right? So that's one way that we're starting to use AI, but it makes for a really natural, fast engagement with the platform to be able to ask you know certain questions like you know show me the track record, sh- you know uh, show me the uh, international exposure, show you know show me whatever it might be for a particular fund, and get a a very succinct answer with a link back to the document, you know, for more comprehensive uh, feedback. The other way that we're using uh, you know, machine-based tools like robotic process automation uh, or or overall machine learning and, and OCR is in data ingestion. So one of the biggest problems with alternatives and the reason why we've had to spend hundreds of millions of dollars wiring together the entire industry is because almost all of the data lives on PDF documents. And as, as everyone knows, PDF documents are static they're you know once once they're once they're created sure it's 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 ultimately zeros and, and ones that are floating around the internet but the document itself is static meaning that the performance the the fund may have a distribution in between those 90 day marks where you have that pdf sitting in your document room that pdf is not updated right and so what we've done is we've been able to scrape those documents and then we are our building in the general ledger directly with the fund administrator, so that we could provide more real time insight into how our portfolio is performing. This is really important when you think about some of the evolutions we've had in the accredited investor space and across BDCs, non traded REITs, more open ended funds. Some of these funds are now doing monthly marks, some of them are even doing daily marks. And so the speed uh, that we've need to need to bring to clients to give them better insights on that next decision. So you have to understand what you own currently, how it's performing, what the exposures are, in order to be able to make that next decision. And so we're we're ingesting the documents, we're 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 pulling them back into a data set in a structured format. We're displaying that information, right, visually, graphically to make it more comprehensive. And then we're updating it on a far more frequent basis than the industry was ever able to do before. So that that's where a lot of this sort of AI and machine
0: learning uh is is going for iCapital. Uh, it's fascinating. Um, you guys have a content series at iCapital called Beyond 6040. And it talks about, you know, obviously the evolution of portfolios, the fact that we should move away from the, the 60% equity, 40% traditional fixed income exposure. Do you guys have sort of a a target that you recommend? Obviously, everybody's situation is different and unique, and you guys are not making recommendations. You're more providing resources and information for people. But as you personally evaluate, what should sort of the uh, the cookie cutter portfolio look like today? Beyond sixty forty, what does that look like in terms of traditional public equities, uh, traditional fixed income, and then alternatives? Yeah, that, well, thanks. Thanks for mentioning that. I,
1: I I certainly would suggest people who are interested in digging a little deeper check out that uh, the Beyond sixty forty series. There's a lot of great content on there. We bring fund managers on. We bring iCapital professionals who are you know specialists in a particular area and, and to, here to come on and talk about the tools we have available for the community. So I certainly recommend people check it out, but. Um, there you you hit it on the head. There is no, you know, target allocation uh for for you know, if you just pick John Smith, you know, it, it all totally depends on his objectives, his risk tolerance, his suitability level, whether he can even invest in the full swath of products available or not. Uh, or maybe he maybe he can't when he's 30 years old, but he can when he's 40 years old, right? So these things change over over time. Um, but what, what it does do, what we do look at is in the decade that iCapital has been operating as, as a company trying to solve this problem, uh, we have seen the allocations to alternatives increase, not, not dramatically, but they are certainly increasing. So when we founded the company, most of the data, if you look at Sorelli and others, it would suggest, uh, that there was, you know, call it one, two, maybe as much as 3%, uh, alternatives allocations, uh, across the independent already. RIA universe, and it was higher in the warehouse, but not, not materially, maybe you know, five, seven percent. Most CIOs or home office models would suggest that if someone's a qualified purchaser, they have five million or more of investable assets, that they should have, you know, something in the range of 10 to 20%, right? So even if you take where we are today in in the highest use cases, we're still significantly materially below where CIOs and home offices of those institutions would invest. Uh, the appropriate clients' uh, percentages. And so um, we think it comes down to education and tools. And that's why we're investing so heavily in platforms like Marketplace and in tools like iCapital Architect, because we we believe you just have to give people the tools to be able to make the right decision or they're not going to spend the time, right? The harder it is for them to understand, to to transact, and to ultimately own an asset, the less likely they're going to do it, particularly- some of my earlier comments about you know we've had an incredibly like buoyant public stock market as a result of zero percent interest rates as a result from the fed ballooning its balance sheet from one trillion to nine trillion right we've had we've had all these incredibly you know stimulus oriented effects on the public market and we all enjoyed like an unbelievable way above sort of median return rate right um you know if you look at kind of 50, 60 years of S&P data, it's sort of 9%. But over the last 30 years, it's closer to 11%. And even near term, it's it's even higher than that. And so you know, people have really been well-served by just buying the S&P and not not thinking about anything else. But the average stock in the S&P as of today is actually down on the year. right? So if you don't own those mega cap techs, you're actually not achieving any return. And Everyone's entitled to their own view. I think it's actually going to get more difficult, right? As the government needs to unwind, you know, thirty-three trillion dollars worth of debt, or even just service the debt that we've accumulated and the budget deficits that we're running at as a, as a country now. Um, in light of all the spending that we need to do for our social programs and infrastructure and other things, so there's a pretty there, there's a there's a pretty scary backdrop. Obviously, there's, there's positive things you can talk about with AI and others, but I think for most people, you should sit down with your advisor you should sit down with your CIO at the home office take a meeting and understand what what alternatives do they have for you um uh you know and and do they make sense and use a tool like iCapital architect to try and understand if they make sense and for some people they won't right if someone says i simply want daily liquidity or intraday liquidity and i will never lock up my money for more than 24 hours okay well, a lot of alternatives are not going to work for you. And you're just gonna have you're just gonna to have to, you know, you're gonna be a little bit like a jellyfish in the ocean. You're gonna go wherever the index goes, right? Like at best, right? Most investors perform worse than the index, right? Because they have behavioral finance and poor, you know, ill-time timing decisions. But but if you're somebody who can deal with some illiquidity in some portion of your portfolio, maybe it's 15%, 20%, you can achieve a set of exposures that give you, you know, 10, 1, 12 current yields inflation protection non-correlated long-term you know multi-strat type return profiles um, that that for most people that are suitable uh, would positively benefit their portfolio
0: so we've talked a lot about private markets private equity and private credit over the last decade have been on fire you've seen a lot of inflows into that space it seems like today everybody's talking about private credit people love the yield that it provides. Uh, as well as, you know, pro- providing a different exposure than you get from public equity markets in particular. But where today, in your view, do hedge funds fit into that equation? When I say hedge funds, you know, people have different views of what constitutes a hedge fund. But when I say hedge fund, I'm talking about long, short hedge funds. I'm talking about global macro hedge funds. How do those, in your view, continue to fit into that sort of new alternative asset mix and and the beyond 60-40 portfolio?
1: well they, they certainly play a role uh but again it comes down to individual uh, client objectives risk tolerances suitability and there are some unbelievably high quality managers in in the areas you mentioned you know multi strats and long short and global macro and others there are some incredibly talented managers out there and you know this is maybe an area where you talk about um You occasionally you'll see an article in the in the mass media saying, like, oh, look at what this pension fund paid in fees to all these alternatives managers and you know, why don't they just own Vanguard, right? Or, you know, iShares or something, right? Well, the reality is all the results that you see published are net of all the fees, right? So 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 like you look at a fund, some of the multi-strats, they do have high fee loads because in order for them to produce the non-correlated Returns with incredible consistency, they are paying millions of dollars a year for just the data, tens of millions, right? And 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 they have the people who are PhDs that are trained to interpret that data and to make investment decisions based on it. So, you know, is it is it right for everybody? No, it's absolutely not right for everybody. But you have to understand that when you look at these return profiles and you look at a tool like iCapital Architect and how it can lower your volatility. And and lower your correlations to your existing you know sort of you know traditional portfolio of stocks and bonds. You have to understand that all the returns you're seeing, assuming they're net returns, are net of all those fees. And so um, I think it does. I think I think global macro long short uh, event driven. I think these hedge fund strategies make a ton of sense for people. Um, but again, uh, based upon their individual goals and and objectives and suitability. So just like private credit has a role. I think hedge funds have a role. Uh, if you if you're willing to lock up your money, uh, you know for a, a little bit longer time period, and you can stomach some illiquidity, uh, private equity, be it growth equity, venture, even you know large cap buyout, those funds have performed incredibly well. Right, that was the data I was referencing earlier, four or five percent per year, better than the S and P, and the S and P over the last twenty years has been an incredible wealth creation machine. And there are entire swaths of private equity funds that their entire historical track record, all of this is available on iCapital. Well, I encourage you to go look at it. They've, they've outperformed the S&P every single year by a very large margin. So so again, is it appropriate for everybody? No. Is it appropriate for more people than are taking advantage of it today? I, I absolutely think yes. And, and we're trying to build the
0: tools to allow people to make, make their own decisions. So you touched a little bit on the venture capital uh, ecosystem. Obviously, uh, valuations for venture-backed companies have taken a significant hit in, in a rising interest rate environment with significantly higher rates. I would say our observations as both a conference organizer and a fund of funds is that it is a difficult fundraising environment for private equity growth investors or VCs. How are VCs on your platform approaching fundraising these days, in what we deem to be a more challenging environment, yeah you you have to have a,
1: a, a you have to have a discernible edge. Uh, the most, um, and this actually speaks to sort of the whole premise of iCapital around managers looking to private wealth as a new source of capital, because many institutions, I'm sure you've read and, and heard about, many institutions are actually reducing. The number of managers that they have on their roster. So they're giving more money to a smaller number of managers so that they can understand them better. And also managers on the on the private side, generally speaking, the the you know the the whether it's private equity, private real estate, private credit, they've turned into um more uh, multi-strat shops themselves, right? So they have many different Forms of private credit, or many different forms of private equity. So, uh, a firm like Blackstone that was not historically in a in a you know growth equity investing mode, uh, they, they they now have a growth series, right? And so there are there you've seen firms um, get very large into a variety of different uh, exposures, so that in, institutions can actually reduce the number of managers. So, well, how does that set up for? a for a you know two hundred fifty million dollar venture fund that's raising their second fund or maybe even their first fund, not not particularly well, right? Because the the traditional sources of institutional capital, endowments, foundations, corporate and public pensions, um, they are uh, for the most part telling these first time emerging managers that you know they're they're full up, they have all the managers they need. Maybe they have an emerging manager program, and you can get you know you get fortunate and pop in there. But for the most part, it's 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 a lot. You know, it's a lot more difficult sledding today than it was, you know, over the last 20 years. So what do you do? I think a lot of people are are turning to private wealth where um a, a venture fund might resonate really well with a small business owner who may had a liquidity event and made, you know, made a bit of money, uh, maybe took, you know, a handful of, of dollars off the table and now they're looking for exposures. And typically the type of person that has made their wealth running a small business, they're long-term oriented, they're patient. They're not interested in the fluctuations in the public market as I was referring to earlier today. Um, and so they might be a perfect prospect for a first-time venture fund because they sit down, the, the, that, that fund manager will take the time to educate them on what's their edge, how do they think about risk management? You know, there's a lot of different ways to to make money in venture. And you actually have the exposure or the time with that fund manager to, to understand. We have tools like, you know, video webinars like we're talking about where we're on right now. Um, we have tools around analytics, like I mentioned, an architect to be able to find these uh first time or emerging managers and then go spend time with them because they'll take, they'll actually take your call, you know, if you're a family office or uh, a, a high net worth individual, they'll actually sit down with you. Whereas, you know, it's more difficult to do that. I guess the last thing I would say is um we think about venture, you think about growth, um where will returns come from, you know, as, as we look forward, right? If we're in a higher for longer environment, uh, you know, which which everyone was saying, oh, no, that's not going to happen. Fed's going to start cutting, you know, back half of 23 and they'll cut all of 24. Like I got, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that's going to happen anymore. Right. And so if we are in that environment, and corporate balance sheets are going to come under pressure. Obviously, there's segments of commercial real estate that will come under pretty extreme pressure. Um, if we're in that kind of environment, where do you go for growth? Where do you go for outsized returns, or even acceptable returns against a five percent treasury? Right. So, like, if you can get a risk-free rate of five percent, you know, you, you need to generate twice that to to be able to justify taking illiquidity risk or, or illiquidity in its own as an attribute. And so we think uh, you have to look at how the evolution of, of companies is changing. So if you look at the United States today and every company that ha- produces more than 100 million of revenue, 87% of them are private. So what does that mean? What's the inverse? It means that if you invest in the wheelchair 5,000, the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, your entire investable universe is only 13% of the growth economy, right? Of the companies that are innovating, that are coming up with new technologies that are, you know, that are that are growing 30, 40, 50, 100 percent a year. That's the very stat. Yeah, right, 13%. 13%, sure. 13% of them. So so like the number one rule of investing is like out of the gate. Don't don't artificially constrain your opportunity set, right? So, and that's what you're doing. If you're only investing in the public market, you're dealing with like you know microcaps, penny stocks, like stuff that probably you know very few people should own, right? Or you're investing in major indices that are only capturing 13 of, uh, of of the investable universe of growth companies. These are scaled growth companies, more than 100 million right of recurring revenue. And so, when you think about it, you you sort of have to dip a toe into private markets. If you just want, you know, your quote, you know, sort of fair share of of the growth and innovation
0: uh that's happening in, in the US today. And you you mentioned that 5% treasury and how that sort of disrupts the landscape. You know, you you have the content series beyond 6040, sort of the premise of iCapital is that people should have more exposure to alternative investments as opposed to just vanilla exposures to public equities and traditional fixed income. But in a world where you have a 5% treasury, does that change the calculus? Do you do you consider the possibility that people might move more money in, back into traditional fixed income and, and it might uh, lead to a slight retrenchment in the alternative investment space? Or how are you guys viewing higher interest rates and thus higher treasury yields uh, in the context of your overall mission? It's... Um... It's, it's obviously very very hard to, to make a forecast on on
1: something like that because we we obviously don't know where rates are going um uh, sh- short or long term right and over any sort of you know re- truly reliable midterm time period. Um, and so it's it's difficult but I, I would suggest that um you also have risk in fixed income as we saw in, in 22 right there was uh, a very significant drawdown I think it was about 16 percent in the Barclays you know AG or the Bloomberg AG um and so fixed income is 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 not necessarily the safe haven it was we have had such a manipulated um marketplace um and i'm not, i'm obviously not talking about insider trading or you know hedge fund manipulation i'm talking about i'm talking about monetary intervention right the things like you know the expanding fed balance sheet zero percent interest rates since you know since really like 2007 right 2008 2008 right i mean that that's that's 15 years of effectively zero percent interest rates. Like that is a steroid into the all financial assets for 15 years. Like that is likely to unwind in a in a variety of different ways. That I you know I, I'm certainly not smart enough to tell you how it's going to happen. But I, but I think what what we what we all should be smart enough to recognize is that that's never happened before. And if you actually look at you know, 40, 50 year run rate of the 10 year treasury. It, it looks like a ski slope, right? Some sort of kind of 15% range down to zero, where it stayed, you know, until we started raising in, in May of 22. So, I mean, there was, you know, a, a couple little blips here and there, but not materially, right? They, they, the, 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 the 10 year was effectively in a downward right slope for 40 years, right? So, if you own, for example, real estate, and you were able to refinance and recap your 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 investment capital and, and just ride that growth, you know, for, for 15, 20 years and constantly re- I mean, you probably refinance your primary residence. I I I I refinance the one I'm in right now three three times, right? And 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 so we've only been there for eight years, we've refinanced three times because you've been paid so much to do so, right? And then that excess, that excess monthly discretionary income that we've all been enjoying has gone back into the market, right? That, that's done now they, they, they're not going they can't they're going up and and there's about an 18 to 24 month lag between when the rates go up and you start to see the impacts on corporate you know corporate the, the cost of them servicing their debt, real estate, credit cards auto loans right so this stuff is just happening now. so anyway, get back to your question um are we going to see people buy less alternative exposures as a result of this? I actually think asset classes like or strategies like private credit should be buying more of that less treasuries because treasuries are more likely again I'm not a fixed income you know I I used to be a bond trader but I'm not, like who knows right I mean you know I, I there are people out there saying they're going to go to 10 12 you know percent on the 10 year right so so if you if you were to buy treasuries today thinking oh like that's a great yield and then yields gap out from you know whatever it is today, 470 on the 10 year to to eight, nine, 10%, you, you're actually losing money, right? So you're not making your 4.7% yield. You're you're losing principal dramatically, right? So I think um I think you need to look at ways to bring non-correlated specific exposures to your portfolio. And alternatives are uh again, an educated advisor and educated investor, uh, now has the tools to be able to bring some of those exposures to their to their client portfolios.
0: But I think it's a great point is that Treasury is historically reviewed as a portfolio stabilizer or a volatility dampener that would generate a fairly predictable yield in the context of, you know, maybe more risk that you take in public equities or other exposures. When as now, you know, traditional fixed income is almost the most volatile asset class, which is a byproduct of of what you mentioned, the Fed intervention, the historic Low interest rates that we've had, and there's no reason to believe that's going to end anytime soon. You know, when you when you start to withdraw the drug, the the, the body and the system uh, starts to convulse a little bit. And so, you know, even if yields are elevated from what they've been, it still could be a volatile asset class. Whereas the goal of of alternatives, in in some cases, is to dampen volatility and provide more predictable uh, yields.
1: Um, and you, you don't have to. Ed, we're not. We're saying you know you have to own 50% of your portfolio in terms, but but right. you know, even 15%, 20% can have a pretty dramatic impact.
0: Yeah. And I, w- I would totally echo what you mentioned too about you know what we're experiencing, again, as a capital introductions platform and an events organizer. Yes, you're starting to see some smaller and mid-sized managers have difficulty fundraising, but you're also seeing the big names that traditionally didn't engage with the wealth management channels and didn't necessarily engage on the global conference circuit in terms of cap intro events and things like that, you're starting to see those players come in and call us and say, hey, we wanna sponsor your conference or we wanna tap into the wealth management ecosystem you know, through your events. And, and so it's sort of counterintuitive, but for a business like iCapital, um, I almost think it could be uh, a tailwind is that you're gonna to start to see more, more and more people and you've seen it over the last few years engage with the wealth channels that didn't necessarily have to before uh, and so it's, it's been an interesting evolution of the marketplace. So, uh, yeah. the last question I have for you is around regulation. So you know, you at iCapital and, and as alternative investment professional, we're able to serve a small subset of the population because of regulation. You have accredited investor standards. You have qualified purchasing standards. Um, a lot has been made about the fact that the average American isn't able to access a lot of these asset classes, which provide... You know, better yields, um, potentially lower volatility, all the different benefits that you alluded to. Again, understanding that everybody's situation is unique, and and those that have less savings and lower income need to be uh, need to invest maybe differently than somebody with a higher net worth. But in your view, are we in the right place in terms of regulation? Are we protecting investors? Are we preventing smaller investors from enjoying the same returns potentially as wealthier investors? where do you think we are and where do you think we should go and where do you think we will go look i, I you
1: know i try, try and remain objective in in my in my answer to your question um i think there's a, we have a, a lot of work to do uh and and i am all for uh suitability being determined by things other than just you know your W-2, right? Your income or your net worth or how much money you have in stocks and bonds outside because that actually doesn't necessarily right. It's not a direct correlation to your ability to understand alternatives, right? You you just because you happen to have two hundred thousand dollars of W two income or three hundred thousand with your spouse, which is the current accredited investor, uh, you know, sort of litmus test doesn't necessarily mean you're quote suitable to make an informed decision, right? Um uh and so um I think the current standards while while helpful uh from 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 trying to raise uh, some level of sophistication bar, right? Just like, you know, institutions are able to do things with options and 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 get, you know, custom notes and such from Wall Street banks that 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 retail can't get. I you know, I understand that, that, that sort of that threshold that you have to be at to to you know sort of you know, back into some level of sophistication, but but to your to your real question, which is, are we preventing or or prohibiting uh, some portion of of the investing public uh, from investing in exposures that could be good for their portfolio and actually reduce risk and reduce correlation and reduce volatility, which you know all of us should be interested in enjoying? Um, I think there's a lot of people that are currently. Uh, yeah, prohibited from investing that, that that likely are suitable, likely are sophisticated uh, and should should participate. Um, and so I, I I guess you know and I guess the other thing I would say is um, you've seen some of the horror stories of what people have done to their to their own you know, balance sheet, in the public markets, right? Through options trading or through, you know, shorting stocks or or just being massively concentrated into, you know, three stocks and having them get cut in half, I mean or or worse, right? Like you know, that that's what we should be thinking about, right? Um and not not, you know, so so I think we have a long way to go with with regulation. It's okay, like the, the industry is is evolving, it's growing up. It used to be an entirely institutional asset class. You know, when Henry Kravis and 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 Leon Black and Steve Schwartzman were sort of running around there raising their first funds. It was all institutional, right? Other than you know some very wealthy you know friends and family that were investing with them. Today it's changed quite a bit. Um, and platforms like iCapital and others have made these 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 you know these really interesting assets available or exposures available to people. And so I think regulation just has to has to you know sort of keep pace with that now um and you know we should we should sit down as as a, as a you know as a as a governing body as as market participants and and really sort of lay out what might make sense for an accredited investor standard or a qualified purchaser standard um so that more people might be able to take advantage uh of of uh, of the asset class um so anyway i could talk all day about that but I, I yeah i think short answer is there's more work to do there's a lot of people that are that are, that are willing and, and able to in, get involved in the discussion and have some really thoughtful uh, ideas for consideration of uh, retirement plans. I mean, you, you hear this before, right? Like Retirement plans are the longest duration asset that anybody owns, right? But, but by definition, and yet they don't have alternatives in them today, yet alternatives are patient and long-term and produce significant persistent outperformance, but they're not in retirement portfolios, right? So it's just like There's just these massive disconnects right, in the marketplace today.
0: Yeah, totally agree. I go back to that 13% stat that you raised earlier, which is if you're not a credit investor, uh, you don't have access to 87% of the growth and innovation in the economy, which seems crazy that you would prevent smaller investors. Again, maybe there's some other standard suitability that's established through some testing or, or whatever it may be. But the fact that 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 constituency doesn't have access to 87% of the growth and innovation in the economy. Seems crazy to me, but they can open a sports book account and gamble on sports. But again, we could talk for hours about that. It's a conversation for another day. But Dan, Vinay, thank you again for joining us here on Salt Talks. It was a pleasure having you at Salt New York in person in May and great to talk to you on here and look forward to finding ways to collaborate and, and bring you to our events and platform in the future. Uh, just a reminder to everyone uh, who watched today's episode, all these episodes are free and on demand on our website and on our YouTube channel. Uh, you can access them at salt.org or on salt Tube, which is our YouTube channel. They're also available in audio format, which we, uh, we post them all on our podcast feed uh, as a result of inbound interest in those that prefer to consume audio-only podcasts. But uh, on social media, you can also keep up with all of our episodes and all things Salt. Uh, At Salt Conference is where we're most active and look forward to seeing everybody hopefully in Asia in November and at future events and next time on Salt Talks. Thanks, John.